Welcome to Mod Pod, Museum of Dance podcast, where we explore why we dance. I'm Hilary Palanza, your host. With us today is Clyde Evans Jr. Evans has been practicing hip hop dance since age 11. His professional career has taken him around the world, including Africa, Italy, London, Brazil, France, Finland, and Australia, and offered opportunities to perform with stars like Will Smith, Jay Leno, Halle Berry, Mark Wahlberg, Robert Redford, Michelle Pfeiffer, Bruce Willis, and M. Night Shyamalan. Evans has appeared in commercials for the Super Bowl, dance contests on BET, So You Think You Can Dance, performances for the X Games, Sunny D, as well as magazine and other print media. Evans has truly enjoyed the opportunities his performance career has afforded him, especially when it was performing for Michael Jackson, and his teaching has been equally rewarding. He has trained dancers who have appeared on America's Best Dance Crew and in the Step Up movie franchise. Evans currently instructs at Montgomery Community College and Drexel University in the Philadelphia area. He has also served at summer dance festivals, including the Bates College and Colorado College. Evans is one of the Museum of Dance's three current artists in residence. The multi-year artist in residence project, Roots, The Power of African-American and Black Dance in America, traces the creation and evolution of African-American step and hip-hop dance through the lens of tradition, expression, musical trends, sociopolitical forces, and migration. Museum of Dance artists and residents offer their perspectives and experiences regarding step and hip-hop dance from West African rhythmic roots through transformations in the American South in the mid to late 1800s to current iterations. Exhibitions will regard these specific dance styles and how inventions, slavery, cultural appropriation, and popular trends change their roles and forms through time. We could not imagine a more appropriate or timely national exhibition to uplift and celebrate the voices of African-American and Black dance artists. For too long, dance communities outside of the Eurocentric tradition have been overlooked and systematically disenfranchised. The borrowed steps of hip-hop, swing, Afro-Caribbean tap, and many other dances are often appropriated, while their originators remain unrecognized and their communities siloed. Museum of Dance seeks to disrupt this dynamic by giving artists a platform to share their stories in their own words, movement, and language. Clyde, I first had that chance to be your student in 2004, I believe, at a summer dance festival in Colorado, and now I've had the pleasure of working alongside you again. It's so exciting to be able to share your story with more people today who haven't yet had the pleasure of knowing you. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, you're quite welcome. Clyde, you grew up in Trinidad. Was dance part of your early childhood um, just in general? Surprisingly, uh, no, it wasn't. Um, The dance in Trinidad was a lot different and it didn't move me necessarily to join in. Um, One of the biggest festivals in Trinidad is actually called Carnival. And during Carnival, uh, the music uh, is Soka Calypso. And that type of movement that's normally done to Soka Calypso uh, didn't, well, let me just say I was from a more conservative home and this is the party before the time when everything is supposed to be silent because it's Lent. This is why they throw such an amazing party because they know for the next 40 days, they're going to be observing Lent as it is a Roman Catholic uh, uh, practice. And so they throw this incredible party and uh, I grew up with my grandmother and so she didn't really allow us to participate in all that Carnival had to offer. Although we did observe it, we went, uh, we did not necessarily join in all the activities of Carnival. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. So you grew up with your grandmother. So when and at what age were you, did you move to the United States and um, and how did you kind of find dance for the first time? I think I had remembered you mentioning some sort of VHS tape experience. <laughs> the VHS uh, experience came a lot later, but um, the thing about uh, what brought my family to the United States was, you know, uh, opportunity, better life. In fact, uh, the reason why my grandmother raised me was because uh, my parents had migrated earlier than my sister and I to kind of set things up uh, to see if they can lay the groundwork for being able to uh, bring us up 
um, in a way that would be, I guess, legal. I mean, not that they came in illegal or maybe that was a thought in their head or whatever, but we didn't all travel together. They first, and apparently the way you do it is, you know, you come up and you kind of see if you even want to live here. So my dad's dad was already living in Washington, D.C., and I believe he came up first, like on vacation visa or something like that, where someone was getting married, something to that effect, and then came home and then, you know, okay, we like the place. We think that this is great. Let's talk to some people in the U.S. about migrating. And then my mom did like domestic work. And then while she was here doing that, you know, things changed uh, in terms of status and then getting with the correct immigration lawyers, they were able to format everything and process everything the way they needed to. Uh, in order to bring my sister and I up. And so I entered the United States at eight years old. And so it was, uh, again, I wasn't really looking so much at the dance culture. I was so young, you know, getting exposed to a different type of music, a different accent, just all the cultural differences. And the only um, the only introduction I really had to, to the United States uh, while I was back in Trinidad was on Sesame Street. So through television, you know, it was this very happy-go-lucky, you know, treat everyone with respect and very kind um, uh, presentation of what America was. Very clean. And lo and behold, I get here eight years old. I land in New York, JFK station, and then have to travel to Philadelphia. And so just along the way, it wasn't Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, a title for a new work. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Sesame Street. Oh, interesting. Yes. So I, I do find this this to be sort of the connection oftentimes from people growing up in other countries is this connection to the television and how um, America can be portrayed in a lot of the time. So, so you landed in New York and you traveled um, to, you know, by by bus or train to Philadelphia, and then you you sort of landed. And how how would you say was your first sort of few years being, um, you know, an immigrant in the United States? What was that like for you? Both horrifying and exciting, and you know, quite honestly, it was all about excitement. It was like I'm going to meet Sesame Street. I'm going to meet the characters. I'm going to be treated this way. And not that I was treated bad in Trinidad. Trinidad was awesome. I just really longed uh, to be with my family because uh, Children's Television Workshop shop on Sesame Street, that was all about family. It was all about these relationships on the street, you know? And so uh, that was missing from my sister and I, from what I could remember, because while I had my grandmother and I had my cousins, I didn't have my parents. And so knowing that you were going to go meet and be with your parents. Well, my parents did visit us while we were in Trinidad and went back home. Like it took that long to get things uh, straight in America. So they had time to come back to visit and go back to America again. Uh, when we finally got to see them, it was just about being together as a unit and being a family. And then kind of venturing out, peering out and looking out into what America was, what the United States was. And so one of the first things, of course, uh, I came up, uh, I want to say it was like April or something like that, and it was cold. So this is the first time I ever felt that cold in my entire life. You know, I, uh, before that, everything was shorts and island breezes, you know, and so it was very, it was a whole other thing. And then I remember the first time seeing snow and what that was like, and, you know, I'd only seen it on television. So all that was just really profound to me and very cool. And the houses in Trinidad they're built on like stilts, if you will. Um, and I don't know exactly how best to say that other than there weren't like any basements. There were just one floor. And when I got to America, uh, we lived on the third floor. Now, it was an apartment, but just to have a floor and floors under you was really cool. You know, I remember thinking that. I remember feeling like, whoa, we're going upstairs. We live upstairs. And, uh, and for whatever value that had for me, it just was indicative of the United States and not Trinidad. And so all these things were so very new and so very exciting, except for the fact that everyone where I lived didn't talk like I did. <laughs> everyone talked, quote unquote, American. And that was something that 
it wasn't necessarily something to behold until I got to school. And when I got to school in second grade, the kids, you know, they thought it was funny. So they all laughed at me. And so that was the big difference. And just that experience of people laughing at you because of the way you express yourself to communicate was horrifying. So I used to fake headaches so I didn't have to go to school uh, just because I, I just couldn't take it. And I thought that the teacher, looking back, didn't um, didn't help because she would always ask me to read, you know, and it was always it was almost like, let's hear your accent, <laughs> you know, as opposed to like, you know, let me uh, bring this guy around slowly. It felt, at least to me, that it was like, let's throw him in, you know. And so every word that came out of my mouth was just so funny to the other students, uh, aside from the fact that the vocabulary, uh, because Trinidad was a, uh, a British colony at one point, all of our language uh, mirrored that um, fact. So the, the term eraser was not in my vocabulary as a West Indian kid. We would call that a rubber in Trinidad. So you get your rubber to, you know, whatever. And so as we're saying that, it's like all the kids crack up laughing instead of saying um, lollipop, uh, which is what we would call it. I think the kids here would call it actually, maybe, no, maybe not lollipop, but I'm thinking popsicle. Like I never heard of a popsicle before. Like, what was that? You know, and so it's just all of these things. Oh, I think in Trinidad, we call it a sucker. You know, so it was like, oh, a sucker. And they're like, oh, ah, I'm just dying, dying laughing. So I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go at all. And so it wasn't until I was, until breaking came along. And when I first saw that, it was like on television, on the magazine shows, like Evening Magazine or, or I want to say the news featured it, but it would be like on, you know, what the equivalent of, uh, inside edition or something like that. Like, oh, this is what's going on in the world. You know, it's a media magazine type half an hour. And they're like, these kids are doing this. And when I first saw it, I was just like, wowed, you know? And then uh, subsequently the movie Beat Street came out and I wanted to see it really bad. And we went to go see it. And that's when I was really, I got a good taste of it for what, an hour and a half or or what have you of the little snippets that were going on television. I got this, a chance to see it and I was so moved by it that um, I decided I wanted to do it. But my, my my wife and I were just talking today. And I think quite honestly, because other people were participating in it, in other words, other people in my class were, were, were practicing that, that I wanted to be a part of that crowd as well, because I thought it was cool. They all thought it was cool. And then when I did it, uh, I don't know how I, I, I got it, but the first three moves I learned, one was the worm, one was a backspin, and the other was a move called swipes. And they really appreciated me for it. And they cheered me on. And that feeling was like nothing in the world. And that's how I found dance. Oh, wow. It almost provided, I mean, maybe not in a conscious way at the time, but sort of a a escape or escape is not the right word, but kind of outlet outside of kind of the things you were going through in school and a, and a different voice for you in a way to kind of be excited again about um, your identity. Maybe, I, I mean, maybe that's kind of a loaded way to see it, but that's sort of how I'm picking up on it. And forgive me if I'm completely wrong, but um, I, I can imagine you know, landing in the U S and, and, and first of all, just being terrified and then having just sort of being made fun of and, and kind of trying to grapple with identity that, that may have been a really exciting way to kind of, um, get close to yourself again. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and let me just clarify too. It was all exciting to be here. It really was. And so, you know, like a newborn baby, if you will, you're just kind of taken in the world, a world that you had never, uh, experience or could have experienced even from television. You know, I, rem- I remember there was another show on, in Trinidad called The Electric Company and Spider-Man was on. So you saw the buildings and stuff like that and you saw the story, but the bigger picture was Sesame Street and it's this awesome place. And, you know, being with your family and, and that was great. And then when you went off to school, your family could not come with you. 
So my sister and I went to the same school, but she was she was four grades ahead of me. So it was it was all that by itself um, and experiencing it by yourself. You didn't know how to handle it. At least I didn't. Not at eight years old. You know, no one could have said, oh, it's OK. This is what it is. Is Oh, you talk differently. than I mean, there was no explanation. It, it felt like just being thrown into 10 feet of water and not being able to swim, you know, and not being able to swim for days, you know, uh, and just, uh, I would cry. I would just like, I'd fake a headache. I don't want to go to school. And they would, my grades were, I was such an excellent student, uh, from Trinidad. In fact, uh, funny story about, uh, just some of the differences. Um, I tested coming up from Trinidad to be in fourth grade, but because of my age, they put me in second grade. So to a degree, I was bored. And I remember feeling like this is so easy, you know, like, why? what am I doing here? Um, and I believe that has to do with just wanting to hold people back, <laughs> you know, and I thought about it. But I remember like going through third grade, like, you know, oh, I know this already. Well, you know why? And feeling like, why am I here? Because my grandmother had always instilled in me about being a good student and paying attention and while in Trinidad, I did, and we excelled at uh, at our studies and, and things of that nature. Took it very seriously, and then when I got here, I was like, I already learned this. I've, I've, you know, wow, this was, you know, so it was so easy for me in that way. But once I had to talk, that was, which is all the time. I, I just couldn't. It just I couldn't get over that. So the dancing, um, I don't know if it really helped me. Uh, with my identity, it just helped allowed me to hide who I was, you know, the real me, if you will, because that wasn't acceptable. But this movement was, you know, everyone held it in such high esteem. And I remember this like it was yesterday. I, one day I went to school and I had on white pants. And one of the girls remarked after I did the worm outside in the schoolyard, and he didn't even get his pants dirty. I could hear her voice still, you know, and I was just like, oh, you know, I just, I just, at that point, I just could do the move or those three moves really well. Even at one point, one of the other students said, you know, we want to enter him into a competition, into a battle to see who has the best backspins. And the only reason why he was saying that is because he felt confident that I would win. So here you are, you know, uh, standing in your Catholic school uniform. And again, you know, when you dance, it's, it's at a certain time, you're not dancing all the time. So we dance during recess or during lunch. And obviously normally you have music to accompany that in third grade, we didn't really have any music to accompany that. So while if you, you saw me and you sized me up, the minute I spoke, you know, ridicule, I didn't, I didn't get to dance to introduce myself. I had to speak. So I almost couldn't wait until those opportunities were afforded to me. And maybe I put just a little bit more um, uh, focus on being able to have moves so that people could cheer me on because 90% of the time they weren't cheering me on. So I feel like I was just really more losing myself as opposed to finding myself because I even wanted to shed the accent, which meant that I had to listen uh, more attentively in order to imitate the accent. And so when I talk to a lot of people, they're like, you know, we can't even hear an accent in your voice anymore. And when I get a chance to tra uh, travel around the world and uh, I go to the countries with accents, whenever I pick up the language, a lot of people, like I went to Brazil and they were like, oh my gosh, I thought you were Brazilian. Just because I began to speak Portuguese, like with a really... Uh, uh, just trying to mimic exactly how the sounds and the inflections of the words were. Um, it, it just came natural to me, that part of it anyhow. It's, it's really hard to hear that. I think um, from, you know, from the perspective of um, just the, I don't, I don't even, the word assimilation or, you know, the, the inability for, 
the American culture to accept um, the differences, because I think supposedly that's who we are, right? Is we're this supposedly melted, melting pot of different people from different places, i.e. mostly immigrants. I mean, personally speaking, my my great grandfather, my grandfather actually is from Italy and um, mother's side is from Ireland. And, um, you know, I just, I think back to their families too in New York at the time and the, the, hell they went through as, as being immigrant and uh, from, you know, Italian and Irish immigrants. But um, to hear you say that it just, it brings some sadness to me. And I think um, probably other listeners as well about this, just kind of losing yourself as a, as a matter of sort of having to assimilate to American culture. So um, were you able to, do you feel like you've been able to find that part of yourself again in your adulthood or do you think that that was just kind of a permanent permanent transition for you well you know they say that i understand there's a a theory by a guy by the name of john locke i studied it in sociology like in eighth grade or something and they said that uh the theory the looking glass theory is that we see ourselves through other people Right. So if everyone starts laughing at you, you would assume that, you know, whatever they're laughing at, whatever they're pointing out is some, there's something wrong with it. Right. And so uh, being a black person in this place, there was so many things people laughed about, you know, so I didn't want to be me. I didn't want to have the skin color or the, the dark tone of skin color that I had. I didn't want to have the type of hair I had, the type of nose, the type of lip. Um, or lips, sorry, I don't have one, I have them two. <laughs> you know, uh, those things, again, they weren't celebrated. Even in Trinidad, you know, I remember, you know, I remember people saying like, oh my gosh, because my sister and I were darker than every one of us. Some of my family, uh, my cousins, they were mixed with Indian uh, East Indian uh, people, or I guess in this case, West Indian people, who were at, at much times more fair skinned than we are. And the hair was more closer to that of white hair in that it wasn't kinky. It was more, it was wavy, but nonetheless, uh, just the, the tone and the texture of it was not like uh, African hair. So from your hair to down to your toes, they were always finding a way like, oh my gosh, you're so black. Don't spend so much time in the sun. I mean, here you are on a tropical island and it's supposed to be, you know, quote unquote paradise, which when I look back, it was, it was incredible, you know, but all the things that you did was now like, oh man, you know, why are you out in the sun so long? You're going to get so black. And like, that's a bad thing. And then coming up here and then having that reinforced or at least, um, uh, also noticed just in a different way, but still, you know, um, as I grew up, I remember people talking about, you know, like kids would share, share their drinks, right? They would go, Oh, let me have some of that soda. Let me have some of that, you know, whatever. And when it came to me, they were like, you know, don't nigger lip it. You know, it's like, Oh, wow. That means don't get And what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your lips if you're, if you're going to share? And these are my friends. And what's so interesting to me is that we had a reunion of some kids from my childhood. And there were a couple people who came up to me and was just like, just forgive me. And I was like, for what? And they were like, just say you forgive me. You know, these were some of the things that they remembered that happened to us as kids and that they did that they were very embarrassed about. Now that they're older, you know, they were just asking for forgiveness. You know, um, not realizing, uh, I guess, the gravity of what they said. I'm, I'm actually surprised when I think about it that I just I wasn't more sad than I was. But but dancing uh, allowed me to uh, have therapy. It was therapeutic for me as I uh, began to, like I said, it was celebrated. So no one said, oh, his skin's too dark. Oh, his lips are too big or his nose is too big. While I was dancing, they just appreciated the moves, you know, for what they were. So I guess uh, my focus became so much more uh, with dance because it was just easier and just better, healthier for me and for my person uh, to participate in it. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. I hope that um, those friends also said sorry before they asked for forgiveness. <laughs> uh, they apologized first. <laughs> You know, I don't remember. And, and it's funny because I was just like, 
what for? They were just like, just, you know, so, sure. yeah. Sure. <laughs> it's good that they, they probably had some, some introspection about that. So it's pretty heavy, heavy load to carry for um, saying those things to you. Um, you've, you know, you, your story to me, Clyde is tremendous because you've, here you are coming from Trinidad, this beautiful country, um, so different or beautiful location, so different. And so, um, uh, like brave of you to kind of jump in and transition and pivot to kind of the American lifestyle. And then also on top of that, basically become, um, one of the most sought after, um, you know, dancers in your field, um, both through kind of the education piece and um, performing. Um, so I'd like to first kind of uh, ask you a little bit about your performance career. You've obviously had tremendous opportunities because of your skill and who you are as a dancer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this um, in terms of like who you've performed with and how they may have held a positive influence in your life and career. And um, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of obviously famous names listed in the intro to this podcast. We'd love to just hear a little bit about that experience for you. Sure. Absolutely. Um, One of the first experiences. Okay. So in Trinidad, we only had three channels. (laughs) I think it was just three channels. And at a certain time, TV, even here in America, TV would just stop, right? It would you get the, the white noise, this the snow on the TV or the color bars until a certain time in the morning when programming would start again. And uh, I remember at one point I watched a, um, what do you call it? A sitcom called Moonlighting, which starred Sybil, Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis. And then at one point, Bruce Willis made his, his transition from... Uh, television into movies. And his first movie, from what I believe, uh, what I remember was Die Hard. And I saw it like eight times in one summer. I was so moved by it. And so the movie 12 Monkeys, which starred Bruce Willis as well as Brad Pitt, was coming to Philadelphia. And so I always wanted to act specifically because of Die Hard, what I saw Bruce Willis do so moved by it, I guess maybe because of the the dynamics between his sitcom days and then his movie days, uh, I wanted to meet him. And the very first day on set as an extra, and I'm in a crowd of people, he grabs me as he's acting. And I actually, that scene or uh, that part of the movie made it into the actual movie. And my wife and I went to see, well, at the time, my girlfriend, we went to see it in the movies and there I was. And we were like, oh my gosh, you know, like that was, that was amazing to be able to be a part of that and then not be on the cutting room floor, you know, to actually be. And so every now and then, every now and then the movie will come on. I mean, it's a really small part, but we look for it and we just, we just laugh about it. And the, just that, just him grabbing me out of everyone made me feel special uh, while he was doing his work. And so the rest, and then now I wanted more of that, right? And so the next movie that was coming to town was called Up Close and Personal, which starred Robert Redford, Michelle Pfeiffer, and this guy, Glenn Plummer. And this guy, Glenn Plummer, and I shared similar features and attributes. And I had did a uh, public service announcement in Philadelphia. And this one guy uh, who I admired that that was taller than me and uh, he had dreads like me, whatever. He 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 whipped out his uh, portfolio with his pictures and his resume. He was in Jungle Fever and this movie and that movie. Apparently, he was the stand-in on this movie, Up Close and Personal, for Glenn Plummer. And somewhere in the mix, he didn't show up on time. He did something wrong. They ended up firing him and calling me to do his job. Now, his job was not to be an extra. His job was to be what was called a stand-in, which means you do all the stuff that the actors are going to do. The director uh, sets up the shots around you, and then the real actor comes in, and then they do the actual acting. So I now had uh, this opportunity, and I remembered from the last movie that I was an extra, so I went to go toward where the extras were being held. It's called Extras Holding or whatever it was. And they were like, no, no, no. They stopped me on the way there. They said, where are you going? I was like, well, I'm going to the extras, uh, you know, where they're holding. And they're like, no, no, no. Here's your trailer right here. 
<laughs> I had a trailer, and when I got into the movie, I, I I worked on it for three days, and I had to stand next to Michelle Pfeiffer because I was playing uh, the uh, Glenn Plummer's um, role was the cameraman of this news lady, so I got to stand next to Michelle Pfeiffer for three days. And then when I went to go eat with the extras, they were like, no, 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 you eat with us. You eat with like the directors and all that stuff. And I'm like, you know, I, I'm waiting for my time to, to go do my work. And I look over and I'm s- sitting directly next to Robert, uh, um, Bobby uh, uh, Redford. And so um, that was just amazing. You know, like here I I went from zero to 100, you know, just from the two little movies that came to, well, they weren't little, but the two movies that came to, to Philadelphia, it's something I always wanted to do. And, but I think I just got a little bit too arrogant because I, I think at, at the time, if I wanted to be an actor, that would have been the time to, to, to go do it. Uh, because they were so moved by the fact that I was just a sponge, just sitting there taking everything in, that they were contemplating taking me back to California to finish the movie. This is all just from three days of being there. I just wanted to, yeah, it was just an incredible experience. And because I had that shot in the arm, I did, I just, I wanted to do some more. So dancing allowed me to be around people like, I don't know, Savion Glover. We did the NAACP awards with him and Dulé Hill. And in the audience was The Rock and Michael Clark Duncan is right there. And Morgan Freeman is right there. And I can go talk to them. And Jay Leno is hosting and, while we were practicing, uh, um, uh, going through the the actual number, somebody goes, hey, did you meet Haley Berry yet? I was like, no, 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 I, did, I haven't met her. So they're like, come meet Haley Berry. So I got a chance to talk with her. And just being around all these people were just, it was so, it was so uplifting, you know? And, and another high point is when Michael Jackson came to see us perform out in UCLA. It was himself and Debbie Allen. That was really cool that I was a part of, a production that they thought they needed to come see. And to kind of uh, just, you know, discuss this for a little bit, I think it's, it's interesting to think about how dance enters different points of um, different professions, right? Like I've interviewed people in the field who um, uh, have worked with healthcare professionals and they see dance having an impact there. And obviously educators and academics, which we'll get to in a minute and dan- dance having an entrance point there. And then, sports too and dance having an entrance point there and I think um obviously with your work with movie and film it has such a presence and um and uh you were able to kind of use it as sort of an an into the movie industry and meet all these really interesting um very talented famous people it's it's really cool and when you when you had the chance to dance for Michael Jackson I just have to ask were you nervous (laughs) well one of the things is that we didn't know fully know that he was there. They didn't tell us until after the show was done. Okay. And so um, the director of the company realized, he was like, who's that person in the back wearing a sheet? Because it looked like someone that was, I mean, this one thing is different than the others. Everyone else was just dressed in regular clothes, but he was in he was in disguise. Yeah. And he didn't realize that that is who it was until the end of the show uh, the people were like the, the people at the theater said, Hey, Michael Jackson, Debbie Allen came to see the show tonight, you know? So didn't realize that we were doing it at all. And <laughs> specifically that night I was so tired. And I remember in my solo, I was just like, eh, I don't really feel like doing it tonight <laughs> because I, I was the lead dancer in this project. And, uh, as I was in most of, um, pure movements projects and, uh, as I was dancing, I was just so tired. And I remember thinking like, I, I, I don't have much to give. So let me just give a little. And then when I found that, I was like, Oh man, you know, why didn't I felt like a burger? Like I just didn't do enough. Uh, and I felt that had I done enough, then there might've been a part two to that experience, you know? Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Well, maybe, or per- perhaps uh, alternatively, maybe it was good you didn't know for for reason for the nerves setting in or something. You never know. <laughs> That's true. At least for me, I can imagine if I knew Michael Jackson was watching me, I might have to go hide behind my own sheet. So. <laughs> 
So Clyde, also your, your, you know, your performance career has taken you, um, to obviously the, the more kind of proscenium stage. Um, and it's interesting your work with Rennie Harris and his, um, pure movement dance company. You were a member of that company, which we know for our listeners, we know that about Rennie Harris, but, um, it'd be interesting to hear about that experience, um, and kind of how I think that brought you to, to discover your own power as a choreographer as well. Yeah, it did. Um, one of the things uh, about that is that while, uh, you know, in looking back at it anyhow, um, Rennie had, um, he had pitched, if you will, or proposed theater hip hop to us, to me to some other people he wanted to join and he wanted to go on this excursion with. And while I was not interested, <laughs> uh, I was one of the only ones who showed up uh, for his rehearsals. And so I want to say I got a lot from him or learned a lot from him just about performing. In fact, before we started, before he started Pure Movement, uh, he had invited me to a concert and he kept miss, um, uh, what do you call it? Misnaming the name of the concert. He called it the Monster Jam and it was actually called the Monster Concert, which I was very familiar with and not realizing that the jam was the concert until like a day before. And it was in front of 15,000 people. That's when I met Mark Wahlberg and Will Smith performed there. Jazzy Jess and the Fresh, uh, Fresh Prince. And you know, Rennie saw how I danced with him. Now I'm, you know, a foot or so shorter than he is. And while it was like, you know, tall and short, uh, I was just able to uh, handle the work and the type of presentation that performing calls for. It's different than just dancing, right? And so I was one of the people that he asked to be a part of this new venture of presenting hip-hop dance in the theater. So he also, to a degree, felt like a fish out of water. But while we were doing that, you know, he, we gained notoriety. It was about three years before we began to actually travel out of state, um, at least uh, con considerately uh, so out of state. And um, as, as a member feeling the progression of this is where we're starting. We're doing stuff locally. And okay, we drive out of state. Now we fly out of state. And our first uh, flight uh, as a company was for Fox something in Ohio. So that was really cool to be thought of or, or, or so highly thought of that someone would actually fly you somewhere so that you could dance. You know, I always thought like, oh, dancers are like local. So just being able to feel that progression and then into bigger and bigger theaters. And again, to a point where Michael Jackson gets wind of you and then comes to see you. Um, I had an understanding about the evolution and the work that it took to create a company and sustain one. Right. And somewhere along the line, uh, Rennie was producing creating this this uh, show called Rome and Jules after Romeo and Juliet, a, a, a more hip version of it, uh, if you will. And I played Mercutio and there is some violence in it. And this lady in Boston, I forget which theater, I think it was like the Majestic Theater in Boston, during one of those talkbacks, she asked, what are you giving the kids? And one of the cast members stood up and said, we're giving them the real hip hop. And I felt like that's not what she's asking. What I had realized is that hip hop has such an influence on the youth, me being one of them back in uh, third grade, that we want to imitate what it is that we see. Now, if we see violence and being rude and misogyny and all this stuff, then that's what we're going to imitate. And I had then felt the calling to create a company that would not uh, present anything like that. No violence, no explicit language or content, none of that stuff. Just good old authentic hip hop dancing, but with uh, families and, and kids in mind, which meant that we were really going to just more so focus on the movement and anything of value to society, i.e. making good choices and, and, and just, just, being responsible and, and 
you know, the stay in school, just whatever. And I don't want to make it sound like an after school special. We can deal with heavy material, but we're just not going to deal with it in a way that uh, reflects the culture of the streets. You know, I wanted I wanted it to reflect more so the culture that we we strive toward and and it's almost like the the we the people you know um the declaration like this is who we want to be although we aren't although it isn't this is who we want to be and chosen dance company is more about delivering hip-hop dance in that way of who we all should be what do you think it is about the style and history of hip-hop that you really hope to relay to people, um, especially those who might not have entry points into this style of dance? Um, well, I would say that there isn't, there's an, uh, there is an authenticity to it and that it's not just simply a fad. It is a true art form, but more so it is a true expression of people's experiences. The My department head over at Drexel, Miriam Jaguer, she said to me, it's like trying on somebody else's life. And so I love being able to share that experience with my students, again, in a respectful way, in a way that honors the culture and not jams a a foreigner into a situation where they're going to drown or they're going to get hurt, if you will, but that they actually have a chance as uh, uh, of success. And by that, I mean positively participating in hip hop culture. I think that's something that a lot of people, students, um, those who weren't there miss. Uh, again, because of the bar to entry, you know, uh, as far as participation is concerned, it's, you know, you take what you see on television, what you hear on the radio, and you're just like, well, in order for me to participate, this is what I have to do. And so I feel like to a a great degree that what I do is rather freeing because there's room for that person's personality and uh, whichever, however positive or negative that may be. But as an instructor, I can impart how important and why it is important to be on the positive side because hip hop as a culture was created out of being positive. Taking this negative situation in the Bronx, New York, that was just crime and uh, poverty, as well as um, uh, there were fires, there were gangs, there were all these things, fear, there were all this stuff going on that was negative uh, around people and the party uh, and dancing uh, and, and enjoying music was a chance to escape that. Even though you were partying in the situation, Everyone getting together and um, celebrating each other's movements or life, really, in this way was positive. And my understanding is that, you know, one of the leaders of gangs uh, uh, took that and called all the gangs together and said, listen, this is what we ought to do. We ought to do it this way instead of hurting each other. And that became the the hallmark and the foundation of what created hip hop, because at the time, all this art was happening. Um, the question was, what do we call this? And this guy who was, again, most respected by everyone said, we're going to call it hip hop. And that's how it all started in terms of the name of the culture being uh, hip hop. So I, I want to impart that to to students and to audience members um, uh, who find themselves wanting to learn, at least from me, uh, about it. And you've spent time to other countries sort of um, teaching, you know, hip hop or going to learn about hip hop from other people in other areas of the world um, as, as this catalyst for positivity and, and interconnectedness in conversation. And I love, I love that about hip hop being, you know, what you're relaying is this, the positive nature of it. I think that's really powerful, especially for students, as you were saying, and, and maybe 
looking into the eyes of you as a child and how it influenced you um, as when you came to the United States as an, as an immigrant. Um, with, with your students, you have, you're also a profound educator and you work um, from, you know, elementary school age up through university, top universities in the country. Um, I'm curious about how you see dance um, having an influence on your students' lives and, and the work that you're doing right now as an educator. And, and perhaps if you could talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, maybe the importance of that or, or how you see it as being beneficial to, to your students in school. So I see that a lot of students are sometimes bogged down by the workload in, at university. Right. Uh, and I think that a lot of students take hip hop dancing because of the value it has in society, but moreover, in their bubble, if you will, on campus. And it is so celebrated in terms of the music. And when everyone gets together to socialize, there's always that music. And the people, again, just like I did in third grade, people who get most of the attention are the hip-hop dancers or people who can dance hip-hop. So they come there really for access, but they come there also for a tool to be able to socialize with their peers, whether they know them or not, and they get to meet people uh, through hip-hop. Now, the expression of most hip-hop dancers uh, is very uh, giving, exuberant, if you will, and, and normally it's well it's compelling anyway so even if you're happy or you're angry whatever people are drawn to it they are moved by it and i think that quote-unquote power everyone wants to be able to have their expression move someone or at least be relatable uh in some capacity to people who are looking at them uh and i think that if a teacher can give a student that tool uh, in the right way, at least I feel in the right way, then it, it, it bodes well for them. They now have a tool that they can deploy. It's like being funny in a room, you know, that everyone will appreciate. And, and uh, I think everybody wants to be appreciated for the energy that they put out in the universe, you know, especially when it's positive, right? It's like, what can I do in this situation? Um, and that will uh, um, prop me up, if you will. And I don't want to make I don't want to make it sound so selfish, but I think that a lot of the curiosity or a lot of the participants they come for that reason. They come like I again, like I was. I thought this was cool. You know, it was so valued by others, and you know, there go I. You know, um, I later realized it was therapeutic. And I think that that once you participate in it, at least to the level uh, that I have and beyond, that you you then see like, oh, there's so many more benefits to this than just, you know, meets the eye, just the exercise of it. And oh, my gosh, it's so fit. And, you know, all that stuff, you know, it's like that's a byproduct of it. But first and foremost, it's like there's this expression that go that's 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 happening and wow, you know, I always feel like a lot of people when it's when it's contributory to the to the evening or to the to the the moment, people just can't take their eyes off of it. And and to be revered in that way at some time in your day or your week is is something worth uh, exploring. And so those students, you know, I feel like providing that for them is is a skill that's worth having you know and and worth making accessible um i've had students stop me and say this is the best course i've had at this institution and and it happened at first i was just like okay <laughs> and then i realized it, it was happening it kept happening and uh, the some of the remarks uh, my department head would read the ref, uh not reflections what do they call it the um the surveys which I'd never read. And they were like, oh my gosh, these kids, this is how they feel about you. And, 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 and the program, everywhere I taught, the program doubled. At Drexel, it doubled. At Wesleyan, it doubled uh, because of how I chose 
to uh, give entry and access into this culture that most, again, only see on television or hear about on the radio, you know? And so um, that's my purpose and it makes me feel important. And no matter what they do with it, I get to be a part of that. You know, that's so moving to me. I get to be, I get to be, uh, um, uh, germane to whatever success they have. And I got to see that when one of the girls that we had, well, in fact, when we were at Boulder, at UC Boulder, and we performed, and there were two girls there, Alexa and Jules, uh, Julie Urich, who are, I think her dad is used to be a, a race car driver because I went to their house and it was a, a race car in their driveway. Uh, I was just like, what is that? Anyway, uh, she knew like two moves. Um, and we, I, I convinced her to move to Philadelphia from Colorado and we trained her and she starred in a movie and the movie that she was in was called B girl, the movie. Now the movie didn't do great, but oh my gosh, she became the star of the movie. And she looked back and she was like, Hey, you know, you're one of the people that I, I, I have to thank because you spent so much time with me, you know, and, and she's white. So, you know, uh, sometimes when people will be like, well, what's a white girl have to do? But when she starts spinning on her head, you know, like, wow, she was all in. This girl was all in because that's not something you just pick up, you know, uh, serendipitously is it's, you have to really work at it and there's pain involved and, and dedication and true skill because, it's amazing. And then she's, she started a movie. That was amazing. I love, I love behind the successes of others. I mean, I think that points to a truly wonderful educator is this ability to kind of stand back and say, like, I, I was a part of that person's success because, um, because I wanted to, I wanted to see them succeed. I think that's, that's so awesome. And and um, even if it's just one move, I mean, I, I feel like even some of the breakdancing moves you taught me, which I felt terrible at, I probably tried at a wedding or two. <laughs> I'll be honest. Yes. I'll be honest. <laughs> yes. That's what you're supposed to do. You got to apply what you learned. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So um, this kind of is a perfect segue, I think, for some of the the performance work you've been bringing to the stage with Chosen Dance Company um, this this work that you've been telling me about recently in our conversations um, with artists and residency planning called From the Hip. And you staged this work about, um, I think you had mentioned standing out in a crowd. And um, I'd like to kind of just to have you tell you know, our audiences about this project and also the other um, piece you're doing with your community classes in the Philadelphia area. So let's start off with the, the From the Hip piece. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the work and, uh, and what you're hoping to do with it in the next few years? Yeah. So, uh, From the Hip is the story of me immigrating to the United States and fitting into the culture using five primary forms of hip hop to tell that story. And so when I got here, um, the other black kids in my, in my school, in my grade were telling me, this is how you are black. This is how you act when someone calls you a name. This is how you walk down the street. This is how you are to be. So they were really just kind of educating me, catching me up to speed on America, but really their America, how they had to survive and navigate, uh, the neighborhoods that we lived in. And, that honestly was a departure from how I grew up. So the story is about getting in trouble uh, as I adopt this thing that I am so enamored with and then having that, uh, that battle between the traditional values that I grew up with and just all of the costs involved in that. And then ultimately getting back to, to basics, to what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to be as a human being wanting to leave a positive impact and participate in positive things uh, on this planet, right? And so that's what From the Hip is about. Fantastic. And you've been, you've been kind of maybe getting back into the practice room a little bit to rehearsals or not yet? Probably not yet with, with the pandemic. It's, it's still yes, I'm, ho I'm hoping to have a meeting with some of the Philadelphia dancers. And specifically, I just wanted to provide a platform for them to be able to succeed beyond 
uh, performing in schools or or just the local dance classes, which I'm sure there are all across the the country as well as the world. But being able to do a main stage play that has potential to make it to Broadway or at least uh, have that goal in mind. And I say that, I only say that because when we did the first draft of it back in 2008 at the Prince Music Theater, uh, people would stop me on the street and say, when is this going to Broadway? And I didn't know how to receive that other than, oh my gosh, this could go to Broadway because I was in it. So I didn't get to see what people saw, but all I knew is that every night we got standing ovations, every night standing ovations. And unfortunately, the theater ended up going under because there was some nefarious activities going on with the staff at the theater involving thievery. However, uh, the work was done. It was just the first draft, but it did extremely well. And so I am looking forward to putting that back together now that my children have grown up a little bit more. I think uh, that um, they don't need me as much <laughs> around as much as I have been for them, but it was definitely worth uh, not pursuing at that time, but now it is. So hopefully when things uh, blow over a bit, I can get some of the uh, leaders or the heavy hitters, so to speak, in the Philadelphia area to come join with me and to move that idea and that work forward. Just looks great. I'm super excited. Mm. Broadway worthy, I think. Um, <laughs> and then this, there's this kind of this other piece that you're doing with community building and community work and for, you know, for some of the things that have come out of this last year, obviously with um, George Floyd and the, um, just the, the outrage about, you know, obviously um, police brutality and um, the complications there. And so you're, you're forging ahead with this amazing community work with the Philadelphia police department and possibly um, offering some, some community classes to um, Philadelphia neighborhoods and, um, and working with dance as kind of a catalyst for unity. And, um, and so you're just doing these amazing projects even and continuing to, to work in education, even with the, the sidelining of COVID, right? So it's just awesome. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, just this community class building um, uh, that you're doing with community, with, uh, sorry, Philadelphia PD? Sure. Um, one of the things that in the last couple of years, even before, actually many years now, uh, before the videos of all these um, heinous acts uh, committed against black people being shown all over the world, uh, I was also I was always asked by community groups, uh, churches, anyone that had anything to do with the community to come and perform because they liked my brand of hip hop presentation. And so it was natural, it seemed anyhow, for them to reach back out to me once George, uh, George Floyd and all the others uh, surrounding that type of activity uh, happened. Once it happened, they were like, Clyde, we want to talk to you because we want to be able to talk to our uh, congregations or our groups about, and we think that you would be the person to talk to, again, because of the my disposition uh, when it comes to not only hip hop, but uh, interacting with people who don't look like me, whether it's white people or whatever. Right. So um, the most of the churches in all these places I've gone to, uh, most of them either run by white people or we were used in a way to be this bridge when they would go into the poor black neighborhoods. Uh, and so, again, you have this example of someone who is participating differently than what you see on TV or what you hear on the radio and uh, loves, loves God, loves the Lord, follows that type of uh, approach to living. And it's, it's really just about loving others. And um, they were like, yeah, this we think this would be a great fit for us trying to reach out or outreach, right, to these communities. And so once this uh, last thing happened with George Floyd, and it was like, it was as if, if there were any doubt to the stories and 
to the concerns the black community have. In fact, there was, right? Which is what All Lives Matter is about. It's like, well, you're not more special than we are. At that point, it was like, wait a minute. Yes, you guys are the flat tire and let's fix that flat tire. Or at least we acknowledge that all the other tires are doing okay. Let's let's pay attention. It's like stubbing your toe. You know, when you stub your toe on something, you don't grab your fingers and your other foot. You grab the toe that's hurt. And that that hurt everyone. Everyone saw the 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 value, I think, that the black community was feeling about their own people and 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 the injustice of it and said, do you now see that this is all the time? And so when Reverend, Reverend Al Sharpton gave his speech and said, it's because, you know, you had your knees on our necks and he was very much. Uh, I don't want to say accusatory, but he was uh, calling out and bringing to light like, yes, this is life for us all the time. Your knee is on our necks in this way at school, at the job, just at the supermarket, which you experienced with me. Right. You know, all these things indeed are true. And now at large and now because of video at last, you're seeing it. And so since the discrepancy uh, was with law enforcement, I thought, well, I've done stuff with law enforcement before. I could talk to law enforcement. I'm always being called upon to talk to, to go from uh, certain organizations to the black community. Why can't I say as a black member of the community, hey, uh, police department, um, there are movements that's accessible to you. How do I know? I saw them online. I saw people doing all these dances that were social and, you know, really putting some time into them. And I thought, hey, if we could share the stage because of these video platforms and the dances I've seen these people do, even if I had to go teach them, they're so accessible. You know, that floss dance or or the dance that, that was that went viral to the weekend. Um, I forget his the name of the song, but all these artists coming out with these dance challenges and these quote unquote uh, people in your neighborhood, the, the firefighter, the doctors, the whatever they're dancing. And I'm like, wow, they can get up on stage and do that with us. It is if they're interested in better community and who wouldn't be, who would want to fight with the community they're policing all the time? Why don't you make it easier by a diplomatic, uh, uh, channel. And I feel that dance offers a diplomatic channel as well as uh, it is one of the most celebrated channels uh, by all, right? It's not just, it's not sports, which is like, okay, only for the athletic, right? And it's not um, this uh, intellectual uh, thing like, oh, let's just have this uh, symposium or let's have this talk. But I feel that it hits all levels. So, you know, whether it's line dancing, which is something that can be done as well. And because it involves music and movement, I feel like that is the widest net and the best uh, uh, tool to be able to bring everyone together and in, in, in essentially for a charrette, which would allow us to kind of uh, get familiar with each other so that we're not so uh, scared when we have these encounters. And I think that's what, what happens, you know, from the police department to those they police, the communities of color, especially everyone's on edge again, because of what they see on TV, what they hear on the radio. Uh, but if we can actually have a live interaction that is about community building, uh, in, in, in this way with this type of culture, I think that we have a better chance uh, if not the best chance, at least at calming down some of the um, um, some of the the fears uh, of engaging with each other. Absolutely. So we can build. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful that everyone in every city should start doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just to be able to move together and see each other and um, kind of strip down this sort of uh, I don't know all of these just uh yeah like you're saying what we're taught through through film and media and what the reality of it is are two very different things so yeah really wonderful really really wonderful projects super exciting and um very timely as well 
So mm. Clyde, I just, I feel like I always have a million more questions for you, but sadly our time is wrapping up and I've, of course, as a podcast interviewer, I'm also a podcast listener and um, have been listening a little bit to Brene Brown. I don't know if you've heard of any of her things. She's this great sort of coach for leaders and wrote Daring, Daring Greatly, among other books, um, and has interviewed some just fantastic people, including recently President Biden, interviewed President Obama. And she does these kind of fast fire questions at the end of her podcast. So I'm doing those for the artist and residence interviews. <laughs> it's just a really great way to ask just a few more questions of each of you about um, how you think. So are you ready? Are you ready for a few fast fire questions? Sure. Okay. If you could instantly change one thing about the world right now, it would be? Equality. Dance artists are? Profound. If I had $1 million for my next work, I would? Produce from the hip. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Without dance, the world would be? Dry. I might be most known for? Approachability. Clyde, seriously, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for your time this evening. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I'm really, really, really excited to share just even just a small portion of your story with our listeners. Thank you again. You're so very welcome. Thank you for having me. Museum of Dance is a nonprofit organization. We work to preserve and contextualize the universal art of dance for the greater public through innovative exhibitions, diverse educational programs, and accessible archival collections. Explore what moves you at museumdance.org. You can sign up here for emails, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram.